Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 1 The Man in the Cave Part 1 Far away in some strange constellation, in skies infinitely remote, there is a small star, which astronomers may someday discover. At least, I could never observe in the faces or demeanor of most astronomers or men of science any evidence that they had discovered it, though, as a matter of fact, they were walking about on it all the time. It is a star that brings forth out of itself very strange plants and very strange animals, and none stranger than the men of science. That, at least, is the way in which I should begin a history of the world if I had to follow the scientific custom of beginning with an account of the astronomical universe. I should try to see even this earth from the outside, not by the hackneyed insistence of its relative position to the sun, but by some imaginative effort to conceive its remote position for the dehumanized spectator. Only, I do not believe in being dehumanized in order to study humanity. I do not believe in dwelling upon the distances that are supposed to dwarf the world. I think there is even something a trifle vulgar about this idea of trying to rebuke spirit by size. And as the first idea is not feasible, that of making the earth a strange planet so as to make it significant, I will not stoop to the other trick of making it a small planet in order to make it insignificant. I would rather insist that we do not even know that it is a planet at all, in the sense in which we know that it is a place, and a very extraordinary place, too. That is the note which I wish to strike from the first, if not in the astronomical, then in some more familiar fashion. One of my first journalistic adventures, or misadventures, concerned a comment on Grant Allen, who had written a book about the evolution of the idea of God. I happened to remark that it would be much more interesting if God wrote a book about the evolution of the idea of Grant Allen, and I remember that the editor objected to my remark on the ground that it was blasphemous, which naturally amused me not a little. For the joke of it was, of course, that it never occurred to him to notice the title of the book itself, which really was blasphemous. For it was, when translated into English, I will show you how this nonsensical notion that there is a God grew up among men. My remark was strictly pious and proper, confessing the divine purpose, even in its most seemingly dark or meaningless manifestations. In that hour, I learned many things, including the fact that there is something purely acoustic in much of that agnostic sort of reverence. The editor had not seen the point because in the title of the book the long word came at the beginning, and the short word at the end. Whereas in my comment the short word came at the beginning, and gave him a sort of shock. I have noticed that if you put a word like God into the same sentence with a word like dog, those abrupt and angular words affect people like pistol shots. Whether you say that God made the dog, or the dog made God, does not seem to matter. That is only one of the sterile disputations of the two subtle theologians. But so long as you begin with a long word, like evolution, the rest will roll harmlessly past. 
Very probably, the editor had not read the whole of the title, for it is rather a long title, and he was rather a busy man. But this little incident has always lingered in my mind as a sort of parable. Most modern histories of mankind begin with the word evolution, and with a rather wordy exposition of evolution, for much the same reason that operated in this case. There is something slow and soothing and gradual about the word, and even about the idea. As a matter of fact, it is not. Touching these primary things, a very practical word, or a very profitable idea. Nobody can imagine how nothing could turn into something. Nobody can get an inch nearer to it by explaining how something could turn into something else. It is really far more logical to start by saying, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Even if you only mean, in the beginning, some unthinkable power began some unthinkable process. For God is by its nature a name of mystery. And nobody ever supposed that man could imagine how a world was created any more than he could create one. But evolution really is mistaken for explanation. It has the fatal quality of leaving on many minds the impression that they do understand it and everything else, just as many of them live under a sort of illusion that they have read the origin of species. But this notion of something smooth and slow, like the ascent of a slope, is a great part of the illusion. It is analogicality as well as an illusion. For slowness has really nothing to do with the question. An event is not any more intrinsically intelligible or unintelligible because of the pace at which it moves. For a man who does not believe in a miracle, a slow miracle would be just as incredible as a swift one. The Greek witch may have turned sailors to swine with a stroke of the wand. But to see a naval gentleman of our acquaintance looking a little more like a pig every day, till he ended with four trotters and a curly tail, would not be any more soothing. It might be rather more creepy and uncanny. The medieval wizard may have flown through the air from the top of a tower, but to see an old gentleman walking through the air, in a leisurely and lounging manner, would still seem to call for some explanation. Yet there runs through all the rationalistic treatment of history this curious and confused idea that difficulty is avoided, or even mystery eliminated, by dwelling on mere delay, or on something dilatory in the processes of things. There will be something to be said upon particular examples elsewhere. The question here is the false atmosphere of facility and ease given by the mere suggestion of going slow. The sort of comfort that might be given to a nervous old woman traveling for the first time in a motor car. Mr. H.G. Wells has confessed to being a prophet, and in this matter he was a prophet at his own expense. It is curious that his first fairy tale was a complete answer to his last book of history. The time machine destroyed in advance all comfortable conclusions founded on the mere relativity of time. In that sublime nightmare, the hero saw trees shoot up like green rockets, and vegetation spread visibly like a green conflagration, or the sun shoot across the sky from east to west with the swiftness of a meteor. Yet in his sense, these things were quite as natural when they went swiftly, and in our sense, they are quite as supernatural when they go slowly. The ultimate question is why they go at all. And anybody who really understands that question will know that it has always been, and always will be, a religious question, or, at any rate, a philosophical or metaphysical question. And most certainly, he will not think the question answered by some substitution of gradual for abrupt change.
or, in other words, by a merely relative question of the same story being spun out or rattled rapidly through, as can be done with any story at a cinema by turning a handle. Now, what is needed for these problems of primitive existence is something more like a primitive spirit. In calling up this vision of the first things, I would ask the reader to make with me a sort of experiment in simplicity. And by simplicity, I do not mean stupidity, but rather the sort of clarity that sees things, like life, rather than words, like evolution. For this purpose, it would really be better to turn the handle of the time machine a little more quickly and see the grass growing and the trees springing up into the sky, if that experiment could contract and concentrate and make vivid the upshot of the whole affair. What we know, in a sense in which we know nothing else, is that the trees and the grass did grow, and that a number of other extraordinary things do in fact happen. That queer creatures support themselves in the empty air by beating it with fans of various fantastic shapes. That other queer creatures steer themselves about alive under a load of mighty waters. That other queer creatures walk about on four legs. And that the queerest creature of all walks about on two. These are things, and not theories, and compared with them evolution and the atom, and even the solar system, are merely theories. The matter here is one of history, and not of philosophy, so that it need only be noted that no philosopher denies that a mystery still attaches to the two great transitions, the origin of the universe itself, and the origin of the principle of life itself. Most philosophers have the enlightenment to add that a third mystery attaches to the origin of man himself. In other words, a third bridge was built across a third abyss of the unthinkable when there came into the world what we call reason and what we call will. Man is not merely an evolution, but rather a revolution. That he has a backbone or other parts upon a similar pattern to birds and fishes is an obvious fact, whatever be the meaning of the fact. But if we attempt to regard him, as it were, as a quadruped standing on his hind legs, we shall find what follows far more fantastic and subversive than if he were standing on his head. I will take one example to serve for an introduction to the story of man. It illustrates what I mean by saying that a certain childish directness is needed to see the truth about the childhood of the world. It illustrates what I mean by saying that a mixture of popular science and journalistic jargon has confused the facts about the first things, so that we cannot see which of them really comes first. It illustrates, though only in one convenient illustration, all that I mean by the necessity of seeing the sharp differences that give its shape to history, instead of being submerged in all these generalizations about slowness and sameness. For we do indeed require, in Mr. Wells's phrase, an outline of history. But we may venture to say, in Mr. Mantellini's phrase, that this evolutionary history has no outline, or is a dead outline. But above all, it illustrates what I mean by saying that the more we really look at man as an animal, the less he will look like one. Today, all our novels and newspapers will be found swarming with numberless allusions to a popular character called a caveman. He seems to be quite familiar to us, not only as a public character, but as a private character, 
His psychology is seriously taken into account in psychological fiction and psychological medicine. So far as I can understand, his chief occupation in life was knocking his wife about, or treating women in general with what is, I believe, known in the world of the film as rough stuff. I have never happened to come upon the evidence for this idea, and I do not know on what primitive diaries or prehistoric divorce reports it is founded. Nor, as I have explained elsewhere, have I ever been able to see the probability of it, even considered a priori. We are always told, without any explanation or authority, that primitive man waved a club and knocked the woman down before he carried her off. But on every animal analogy, it would seem an almost morbid modesty and reluctance on the part of the lady, always to insist on being knocked down before consenting to be carried off. And I repeat that I can never comprehend why, when the male was so very rude, the female should have been so very refined. The caveman may have been a brute, but there is no reason why he should have been more brutal than the brutes. And the loves of the giraffes and the river romance of the hippopotami are affected without any of this preliminary fracas or shindy. The caveman may have been no better than the cave bear, but the child she-bear, so famous in hymnology, is not trained with any such bias for spinsterhood. In short, these details of the domestic life of the cave puzzle me upon either the revolutionary or the static hypothesis, and in any case, I should like to look into the evidence for them. But unfortunately, I've never been able to find it. But the curious thing is this, that while 10,000 tongues of more or less scientific or literary gossip seem to be talking at once about this unfortunate fellow, under the title of the caveman, the one connection in which it is really relevant and sensible to talk about him as the caveman has been comparatively neglected. People have used this loose term in 20 loose ways, but they have never even looked at their own term for what could really be learned from it. In fact, people have been interested in everything about the caveman except what he did in the cave. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>